Mark, chapter 14, verse 1 to 9. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the Leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for having me here this morning. My name's Rob. I'm one of the members here at High Wycombe. And uh, I'm going to pray first before I, before I start with the message. So, Heavenly Father, as um, Owen already prayed, that we might hear your word, we might take it to heart. So open our ears, open our hearts to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. For each of us in our childhood, uh, we may all have had an interest or a hobby or a talent, something we were good at or something we would have liked to have been good at. For me, the thing that I was best at was swimming. And so I enjoyed watching the World Swimming Championships that were recently completed. And the thing I want to consider with you all is how significant was each nation's performance at these championships? Many of you will be aware that we, Australia, topped the medal tally. Of the 42 events, we won 13, so it's almost a third, and nearly double the next best haul of any nation, which was the USA, who won seven. Well, most people would consider that of all the nations, Australia's performance was the most significant result of the championships. But there was one exception the American media. The NBC network placed USA at the top of the medal tally on the basis of their total medal tally, gold, silver and bronze combined. So they had 38 compared to our 25. You see, NBC placed more significance on USA's 20 silver medals than they did on gold medals. So I'd like to ask the NBC, if silver medals were so significant, then why is there... Uh, swimmers were approaching the wall to uh, win, win the event. Why didn't they stop just before they got to the wall? <laughs> and then let the next swimmer go past and then touch the wall themselves. 
one more measure of significance in the swimming results, which I find interesting, relates to which nations punched above their weight. See, while the USA were earning one gold for every 50 million people in their population, there were four nations that earned better than one gold for every 10 million people. Tunisia for six million, Sweden, one for every five million, Australia, one for every two million, and Lithuania, two gold, earned at the rate of one for every 1.4 million people. So Lithuania, only a small number of gold, but they produced a significant result to grab our attention. Lithuania was significant. Now, of much greater importance than how significant were the swimming results is the question, how significant are you? And that's the title of the message today. How significant are you? To, uh, how significant do you consider yourself to be? To assist with answering this, as we go through the passage today, I'll be highlighting the significance of the people in the passage. Some of us, like the American media, may consider ourselves to be more significant than we actually are. Some of us, whether we're big achievers like Australia or small achievers like Lithuania, may have an accurate estimate of how significant we are. Some of us, if we see ourselves as small achievers, may underestimate how significant we are. So let's turn to the passage, Mark chapter 14, that Cora read for us. Thank you, Cora. What has led up to this passage? So I invite you to, to open it before you if you haven't got it open already. Uh, well, it's set in the last week prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had entered Jerusalem to much fanfare a few days previously. And generally, he was spending each day of this week in Jerusalem, and then each evening he was going back to Bethany. Uh, it was about an hour's walk away. And Jerusalem at this time, it was becoming crowded with people who were gathering for the upcoming Passover feast. The population would more than double with the visitors. This was always a time when riots and rebellions could ignite among those who were discontent with being under Roman occupation, for instance. And the ruling elite who were living comfortably under the occupation, they were always nervous that things would get out of hand. And uh, the Romans would take their power away from them if there was any unrest. And they saw Jesus and his followers as a likely source of unrest. And so we come to today's passage, and I'll begin with a brief overview. See, Mark cleverly composes the passage in a sandwich. It's a literary tool that he uses multiple times throughout his Gospel account. And in between two passages that follow on from each other, he has another event sandwiched in between, signifying this event is related to the two adjoining passages. And in this case, we have two short passages related to the plan to kill Jesus. In verse 1 and 2, we have the chief priests and scribes, and they discuss this plan. And in verse 10 and 11, we, Judas assists with progressing their plan. And in between, verses 3 to 9, conveys the message that this death, the death of Jesus, it will not be a waste. This death will be significant. Jesus' devotion to the Father is demonstrated through his death. There is something beautiful achieved through Jesus' death. It's remarkable that through the dialogue, 
in verses 3 to 9, Jesus gives us a parallel picture. The ointment used to anoint him is also not a waste. The woman's actions in anointing Jesus is significant. The woman's devotion to Jesus is demonstrated through her action. And the action of the woman in anointing him is a beautiful thing. So there's concepts each to be fulfilled in tandem. There's no waste, there's significance, there's devotion, there's beauty. Going back to the first two verses now. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be, any, uh, let there be an uproar from the people. I'm going to call these leaders fallen leaders. They can't get anything right. They're seeking to arrest and kill Jesus, but not during the Passover. Not only are they planning evil in killing an innocent, but they also seek to avoid sacrificing the Passover lamb during the Passover. You see, the Passover is an annual festival, celebrating the time when Israel were delivered from slavery to Egypt. And when the people were being freed, they were to sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood on the lintel and on the doorpost so that the angel of death would know to pass over that house. And the angel went to each house that didn't have the blood, that's the Egyptians' houses, to kill the firstborn son in those houses. And in the turmoil of the loss of all, the fir all their firstborn, the Egyptians let the Israelites go. God instituted the death of the Passover lamb about 15 centuries before Jesus to coincide with the very day that Jesus would be crucified. The delivery of God's people achieved through the Passover lamb was merely a foreshadowing of the delivery of God's people from sin and death and the devil through the sacrifice of Jesus who, as Messiah, was God's true Passover lamb. So the chief priests and scribes, who as executors and experts in the law were the ones responsible for the administration of the Passover, they were trying to orchestrate one thing, the death of Jesus, outside of the time of the Passover festival, while God was orchestrating another, the death of Jesus, the Passover lamb, during the Passover these leaders, like the American media, consider themselves to be significant. And they were unwittingly significant in the execution of God's plans, but they were not significant in God's kingdom. Jesus had just been saying at the end of last week's passage in Mark 13, stay awake. But these leaders were not awake to what God was doing. Jesus is their own Messiah and they do not recognise him. And the message for us today is don't be leaders of our own life, fallen leaders, attempting to orchestrate our own plans. Recognise Jesus the Messiah, anointed by God as king of our lives. Stay awake. Be confident in the plan that God has orchestrated. Let's play our part in his plan which he will succeed in bringing to completion when Jesus returns. Verse 3, it contains the main action of today's passage. It describes an, an astonishing event. And if you can think, to jump in your DeLorean and put yourself 
in the room when this event is happening, imagine to yourself what your reaction would be. Jesus was in Bethany. He was sharing a meal. And as per the custom of the day, it would have been only men around the table. And they would have been down at floor level, reclined, with their legs away from the food. In modern terms, more similar to a picnic than a table. An unnamed woman approached and uh, she was carrying an alabaster flask of ointment with pure nard. The flask itself on its own would have been valuable, but the nard was a a plant native to India. So the flask may uh, may have been imported from there, although there was some production in the Mediterranean, but no matter where it was from, it was an expensive imported item. In its first five states, it was worth more than 300 denarii. How much is that? As it was in the version that Cora read, a year's wages for a labourer. It was often used as a fragrance with which to anoint a dead body in order to cover up the stench in the early stages of decay. Such a valuable item, it might have been a family heirloom, It was an item destined for single use. Once the neck was broken, it did not have a shelf life. So whenever it was used, the woman needed to pick the right occasion. And this was a highly unusual occasion for it to be used. Due to the dirt and sweat involved in travel in those times, it wasn't uncommon for a guest to be freshened up by being anointed with diluted oil at a table, but not with pure nard. Nevertheless, this was the occasion that the woman chose to use the ointment. It's evident that she viewed Jesus as the one who was worthy of honour, worthy of her devotion. And she also viewed Jesus as being approachable, whereby she was able to undertake the personal contact involved in anointing his head. Jesus accepted her offering, in which the room was filled with a beautiful aroma in his honour. He accepted the invasion of his personal space. He accepted her service to him. He accepted her She is one of his people, the people belonging to God. Out of a whole lifetime of living, she is remembered for just one single act with no recorded words. So like Lithuania, her achievement was small, but her significance is great. There's an astounding contrast happening here. The ruling elite from verse 1 and 2, they're in the house of God the temple. This woman is in the house of Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about Simon the leper. He may be alive, he may be dead, he may be healed and present, or he may still be leprous and absent. No matter who he is, his title carries the stigma of having been an outcast, not allowed into God's presence, and therefore his house is one of low status. So while the ruling elite are in the temple thinking that they are serving the living God, the living God is in a house of low status accepting service from his true servant, one who truly belongs to him. And furthermore, the 
the ruling elite are men who are titled and the woman is a woman in a patriarchal society and is not even named. The message being conveyed here is that the kingdom of God is even for people who are seemingly insignificant. The kingdom of God, it's even for people who are seemingly insignificant. So whether you consider that you are significant or you have a sense that you are not a particularly significant person, God is saying to you, you are of great significance in his kingdom. He values a reciprocal relationship with you. You are greatly loved by him and your love for him is highly valued by him. And the passage continues as we look at verse five and six, uh, 4 and 5. There's some angry detractors and they are scolding the woman. Mark doesn't say who they are, but there's an equivalent passage in Matthew 26, and it tells us that these are Jesus' own disciples. We've seen the fallen leaders in verse 1 and 2, and now these ones I'm calling the unformed leaders. Their time would come when they would be the leaders of the church, spreading the gospel of Jesus after he had ascended to heaven. But at the moment, their leadership qualities were unformed. For example, Jesus had just told them that they would need to stay awake, and yet the three main men, Peter, James and John, would fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter would deny knowing Jesus at his trial. And here they are, not doing anything for the poor themselves at that moment in time. But they were exercising the audacity to demand what should be done with someone else's prized asset. They say in verse 4 and 5, Why was this ointment wasted like that? It could have been sold and given to the poor. They were judging what they considered to be an appropriate use of the ointment and what they considered to be a waste. They remind me when we had bushfires over east in 2019, 2020, and people were posting that the likes of Gina Reinhardt had not given donations from her vast wealth. They didn't know whether Gina had given or not. And they didn't know what other causes Gina might have supported. But nevertheless, without us knowing whether they gave or not, they stuck their dirty noses where they didn't belong. And Jesus here rebukes the four men for their inflated sense of significance in verse 6 and 7. He tells them in verse 7, Whenever you want, you can do good for the poor. We can fall into the same trap as the disciples here where we know what is best, so we feel authorised to judge another. I know I have done that more than I care to remember. I was in a cafe this week and my friend, I'll dob somebody else in this, on this occasion, my friend pointed out there was a lady with holes in her jeans saying, oh, she shouldn't have holes in her jeans. So what if she has holes? <laughs> Take the log out of your own eye and take this and, uh, and, uh, before taking the speck out of another's eyes. The message for us is this. If you have something to say about someone else, what would Jesus be saying to you? Judge what the Lord would have you do rather than what someone else should do. Another, there's another message. The disciples stuffed up. 
but God still used them in the long run. If we stuff up, the Lord hasn't finished with us. We are a work in progress. If we stay awake, he will forgive us. He will refine us and he will use us. The disciples, they were choosing to be dissatisfied rather than joyful. If we choose to be dissatisfied, it will rob us of our joy. It's Jesus' turn to speak from verse 6 onwards. He defends the woman. He stands up for her. Leave her alone, he says in verse 6. He also commends her. He praises her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. He says again in verse 6, we can see that Jesus approved of her application of the ointment. Not because he doesn't care about the poor. He does care. And he urges the disciples to do good for them. Rather, he affirms that she couldn't eradicate poverty. And the pure heart motive driving her to honour Jesus this way was a worthy thing in itself. She has done, look at verse 8, she has done what she could. Jesus goes on in verse 8 to speak words of prophecy. The woman's act, worthy on its own message, uh, on its own merits, it was even greater than the woman would have realised. Jesus knew that he would lay down his life within the next two days on the Passover. It's doubtful that the woman knew this, in which case it would have been news to her when Jesus said, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Bodies weren't anointed beforehand. They were anointed when death occurred. And I doubt the woman would have been expecting such credit. Jesus continues his prophetic announcement in verse 9. Here he says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed. So he's foretelling there is a gospel, amazing news, and it will be proclaimed. There's no gospel if Jesus is to die and to remain dead. Death is not defeated if Jesus remains dead. There's no new life for us if there's no living Jesus with whom we are united. There's no freedom from sin if we are not united with the sinless Christ. There's no freedom from the devil if the devil is victorious in killing off Christ. Jesus knows that the gospel will be proclaimed because he knows that he will die and rise again. And Jesus knows this amazing news will be proclaimed in the whole world, he says in verse 9. And Jesus knows that this woman will be remembered throughout the rest of history for this one single act which Jesus connects to his gospel. And so, from a distance of 2,000 years and 11,000 kilometres, we here, today, still recount this woman. Jesus said we would, and he's right. Jesus' words from his time on earth, are full of truth, even today. So if Jesus is not your entire purpose for living, then you're not living according to what is true. You're not living according to what is real. If life isn't making sense to you, this may be why. 
I consider Jesus ensured that this woman's act would be remembered because it reflected truths about the gospel. In addition to what I've already mentioned, I need to point out one more thing to support my reason for saying that her act was gospel-related. And it's this. In John 12, uh, John 12 provides another account of Jesus being anointed with 300 denarii worth of ointment. And I, along with many commentators, consider John 12 and Mark 14 being two accounts of the same anointing. Not all commentators are of this view. There are some consider that this anointing, there was this anointing described here in Mark and another one six days before the Passover, not two days before, described in John. Because John mentions that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover and then he goes straight into the anointing. But I consider that John's merely saying that Jesus arrived in Bethany and sometime during the several evenings that he was in Bethany, the anointing occurred, and the same anointing, it's the same anointing that Mark records. Now, on that, as, as with anything you hear from someone else, search the scriptures for yourself to make up your own mind. But assuming that John 12 is the same anointing as Mark 14, then the unnamed woman is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Mary had recently witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So she recognised, even before Jesus himself had died and come back to life, that he held the keys of life. He was the one through whom death was defeated. That she was to honour him. She was to be devoted to him. Importantly, she was not accepted by Jesus because of her devotion. Her devotion was the fruit of Jesus loving her first. John 11, prior to Lazarus even dying, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus' loving was before uh, the devotion that Mary gave. The whole anointing incident, it's a beautiful picture of reciprocal relationship. Mary responding to Jesus with the devotion and Jesus accepting her devotion. It's a wonderful view of reconciled relationship which the gospel of our Lord Jesus gives us. Now because of this woman's devotion, she was willing to give over to Jesus what was irreplaceable to her. Relationship with Jesus was of greater value to her than the nard ointment. At the Creelman's Quiz Night fundraiser last week, there was a remarkable example of someone giving up on what was theirs, but gaining something of greater value in its place. One of the games had everybody stand up and then a quote was read out. Everybody had to guess whether the quote was from Michael Jackson or from Michael Jordan. <laughs> Get the wrong answer and you sit down. And the right answer and you remain standing. Now, some sat down after the first question. I'd lasted about four questions. But after about eight questions, there were two people left. And then on the ninth question, they gave the same answer, which meant the winner couldn't be decided. On the tenth question, they gave the same answer. <laughs> so, again, uh, so one of the two, Jane, recognising the need to have a different answer to decide who would win, 
sacrificed her answer and changed from Jordan to Jackson. It might have been the other way around, doesn't matter. Her willingness to give up her better judgment landed her with the winning response and so she gained the prize of victory. It was beautiful to watch. If we are willing to give up what is irreplaceable to us, we gain the fullness of life in Christ, which is of greater value than anything that we might want to hold back from him. So are you loving Jesus with whatever is most valuable to you? Are you willing to give it up if the Lord tells you to? might be your leisure time. might be your sporting passion. might be your children or your spouse, your career, your possessions, your self-reliance, your pride. The woman who anointed Jesus recognised that while she was insignificant to others, she was significant to Jesus, her king. And so she loved him with that which was most valuable to her. Likewise, all of us who belong to Jesus are significant in his kingdom. May we respond with similar devotion, for this is what it looks like for us to stay awake. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have orchestrated a plan for your creation. You are faithful to your plan. Jesus died, Jesus rose. And because you are faithful, we know Jesus will come again. Thank you for your love, costly to you and beneficial for us. Like the woman, may our love and devotion be our response to you. Thank you that we are significant in your kingdom, no matter whether we are or not by human standards. Help us to be faithful servants in your kingdom, willing to love Jesus with whatever is most valuable to us. If there are any of us here today for whom today is the first day that they've recognised that you are Lord of all, thank you for the joy and the new life that you give them and please grow them in their new faith. And we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.